It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Economics affects everything in the world around us. But how much power do economists have? It's not the case that economists got to run the country and do whatever they wanted. But nor is it the case that policymakers could have gotten to these places without the help of economists. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks. But first, Argentina's economy is in crisis, again. The Argentinian president, Mauricio Macri, has imposed capital controls in an attempt to contain the country's escalating financial troubles. Last month, the peso fell to a record low, and the country's been in deep recession, with inflation running at over 50%. Argentinians are more likely to favour converting their pesos into dollars and their bank deposits into banknotes, safely tucked inside a mattress. These problems aren't new. Last year, the International Monetary Fund approved a $57 billion loan to try to support the economy. Christine Lagarde, who was running the fund at the time, hoped it would help the government to get back on track. The Argentine authorities uh, have designed, conceived and take full ownership of the program of reforms uh, that is being proposed. We have clearly negotiated with the authorities to fully understand the ramifications of their plan, to fully appreciate that it has every chance to be a success if it is well implemented. And it is in that spirit of partnership and cooperation that we have worked together, as I said, on the basis of a program that is theirs and that we believe, if implemented, will be a success. But despite this hope, the economy's in even deeper trouble. And the situation has deteriorated since President Macri's poor performance in primary elections last month. So how much of this failure does lie with President Macri? And how much with the IMF? And what can be done? Simon Cox is The Economist's Emerging Markets Editor. So Simon... How big a mess is Argentina in this time compared with all its previous crises? Yeah, it's not looking good. Um, as you mentioned, the peso has dropped again, and that's going to make it even more difficult to tame inflation, which has been uh, incredibly stubborn over the last few years. And uh, the imposition of currency controls followed an attempt to reschedule Argentina's quite large debts, a lot of which is in dollars and foreign currencies, which again becomes harder to service if the peso drops. Um, and on top of that, they're dealing with the political uncertainty, even though now it looks as if the Macri government will surely fall in the October election. We still don't know a great deal about what the opposition will do. So there's a great deal for them to overcome. And could you tell us a bit more about the latest measures put in the capital controls? What are the limits being imposed and have they had any instant impact? 
So what they've done, I mean, it's very humiliating for this government because one of the first things they did in coming to power was to remove the capital controls that the previous populist government had imposed. But they were forced to do it, really, because they were unable to roll over some of the short-term debt that they previously had been able to refinance. And they were very worried that if they just allowed their foreign exchange reserves to run down, they would basically run out of any ammunition to defend the currency. So instead, they've done two things mainly. Uh, they've restricted Argentines from buying dollars. There's a limit of $10,000. And they're forcing exporters to convert their dollar export earnings into pesos, both of which in the very, very short term seem to have stabilised the currency. But, uh, of course, a black market will soon develop, and these controls impose all sorts of distortions. One thing is that exporters will now be much less willing uh, to sell their goods abroad. They'd rather sit on them uh, and uh, wait until they can keep the dollars that they earn. But it seems not that long ago on this program. In fact, it's just over two years since we were talking about Argentina's success in selling a 100-year bond to the international markets. How did things go so wrong so quickly? So the Macri government... Uh took the view that it could afford to take a gradual approach to solving some of the problems that had been bequeathed to it by the previous administration, uh, which was a populist administration that had run a fiscally irresponsible regime. Uh, they left them with a very large budget deficit. Now, cutting that budget deficit was always going to be unpopular. So the Macri government thought, well, we'll go slowly so as not to try the patience of the electorate too much. And for a while it worked because the international markets loved Argentina. They bought into the idea that Macri was an investor-friendly uh, new direction for the country. And so they were extremely patient. All that changed rather suddenly uh, around April 2018. There was a general tightening in global market conditions. So conditions turned against them. And that's when they had to turn to the IMF. You say it's a big humiliation for the government, but is it not also a bit of a blow to the IMF? I mean, after all, that $57 billion loan last year was its largest ever. It is a blow to the IMF. I mean, their hopes were high back in sort of April 2018 um, that they could both rehabilitate Argentina and also rehabilitate their own reputation in the country and the broader world, uh, because, of course, uh, Argentina and the IMF have a long and rather unhappy history. Uh, the IMF is a very unpopular institution in the country, and its failures in Argentina were a big blow to its credibility internationally. So the view was that this time they would do it right. Uh, their program was a little bit gentler. Um, they uh, actually required the government to spend a certain amount on the poorer sections of society. Uh, and they also gave um, Macri quite a lot of money, as you mentioned, uh, because they felt that he was pursuing the right sorts of policies. Uh, one thing that everyone got wrong was inflation. They thought they could bring it down much more quickly than they actually were able to. And that partly reflects Argentina's history. You know, people don't trust uh, the government to keep the currency stable. They don't trust the government to keep prices stable. And because they don't believe it will happen, that makes it less likely to happen. And presumably the forthcoming election does not help that the opposition candidates are campaigning on a platform of going further in renouncing austerity than Mr Macri has. Yes, yeah, so I think you know, the Macri government in its defence can blame its predecessor government, uh, which left it a very difficult legacy. Uh, they can also blame the successor government uh, because when they lost primary poll in early August, that had a catastrophic effect on market confidence. 
And there had been some signs in the months running up to that that the economy was stabilising. Inflation had come down a bit and growth seemed to be bottoming out. Uh, The recession seemed to be coming to an end. So you could say that, you know, if Macri's electoral prospects had been better, then perhaps Argentina had turned the corner. But the fact that he basically had exhausted the patience of the electorate, the fact that the successor government so frightens uh, investors has really um, made their victory almost certain because it's made his economic programme completely unsustainable. And is there anything that successor government could do that might turn things around? You know, you can try and find uh, silver linings in all of this because some of the things that everyone feared would happen if they won have already happened, uh, such as you know, a restructuring of debt, a big sell-off in the peso, uh, perhaps currency controls too. And so um, this successor government, uh, even though it's a populist government in its inspiration, could surprise investors by being a little bit moderate. And if it were to do that, I think the markets would reward it quite generously. They would be so relieved. And they could also blame some of the sort of heterodox measures they'll have to take on the previous administration. They could say, well, look, you know, Macri has already imposed currency controls. Macri has already rescheduled debt. So let us just complete that process. And uh, at the same time, you know, stay in talks with the IMF, not completely repudiate the agreement that they reached with the IMF. And then I think there would be an opportunity for the next government to reap a massive sort of political uh, dividend from that. They could say, look, we sorted out the mess that the neoliberals left behind. And some of the people in the opposition camp have struck those sorts of notes. One thing they've been talking about is uh, a pact, a social pact, where they would bring together unions, businesses, elements of the Macri government and, and opposition, and try and bring about a, a moderation of wage claims and in that helped bring uh, inflation under control. Uh, that's really been the most stubborn problem Argentina's faced. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more on this story in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, money may make the world go round, but just how much do economists have to answer for in setting the direction, or indeed throwing it all off course? Well, that's something the journalist Benjamin Applebaum has been looking into in his new book called The Economist's Hour. In it, he examines the role economists have played in dictating public policy. How did they come to have such a big influence? Our US economics editor, Samaya Keynes, spoke to Benjamin Applebaum about his work. And she started by asking him why he thought it was important to write about the effect that economists have had on American history. I think of it as the story of a revolution, a quiet and really important revolution that began in the late 1960s and the early 1970s when economists began to play a new and profoundly important role in shaping American public policy. It's a story that I think has a lot of consequences for the present day and a story that I don't think a lot of people know very well. When you say economists, who do you mean? Do you mean literally every economist? Do you have a slightly narrower definition in mind? I think, you know, economists are an incredibly diverse group. I mean, any profession that includes Karl Marx and Milton Friedman obviously can't be defined by its ideas, per se. The economists that I'm talking about are basically the mainstream American economists who became influential in policymaking and who in particular tended to support the idea that government should... Uh, reduce its own efforts to manage economic conditions, and that it should rely on market mechanisms instead, that it should allow exchange rates to be determined by markets, that it should allow the military to pay a living wage to soldiers rather than requiring people to serve, that it should 
uh, step back from regulating airfares and what sandwiches could be served on airplanes, uh, that it should reduce tax burdens to encourage investment. Uh, across all of these areas, there's sort of the same animating idea, which is that government is not as good at allocating resources as markets and that we would get better results if we relied on markets. Can we go through uh, an example that you go through in your book early on, which is about economists' role in ending conscription in the United States? So what was their role and how do you think they might have got it wrong? Most people think of the end of military conscription in the United States as a straightforward byproduct of the Vietnam War. It just got so unpopular to fight that the government stopped forcing people to do it. And the truth is more complicated. The truth is that the federal government had grave misgivings about its ability to end conscription and was ultimately convinced that it was possible to do so by free market economists who argued uh, that the government would be able to fill the ranks of the armed forces by paying people to serve. You could let Elvis Presley go pursue a singing career and pay someone else to fight in his place. And by doing that, you would get a more efficient, more effective fighting force. Uh, people would stay in the army for longer. They'd get better at being soldiers. And this would be better for the United States. Milton Friedman and some other economists, notably a blind economist named Walter Oy, convinced the Nixon administration that this was a viable alternative to a draft. The consequences are really interesting, too, because it really highlights a lot of what we're talking about during this period, during this economist's hour. On the one hand, you did get a more efficient armed force. On the other hand, it used to be the case that wars were acts of national purpose and that they at least potentially engaged every man of a certain age in that national purpose. Today, war is basically a line of business for the United States. We pay a certain number of people to fight. They've volunteered to do it. And for the most part, Americans feel willing and able to tune that out. And I think there's a good argument that that has contributed to our ability to sustain sort of long-running, low-intensity conflict around the world. I thought that example was also really interesting for, for the way that economists were arguing their case. Because there weren't vast amounts of empirical evidence available for them to use, which we might expect economists to draw on today if they were giving advice about such a, a big policy change. It seemed to be much more based on the theory. Is that as significant as I, as I thought it was? I think it is. And I think it actually typifies uh, the way that economics was uh, conducted in the mid-century. It was not nearly as empirical a discipline as it is today. It was much more grounded in sort of grand theories about the way that the world worked and the way that people would respond to incentives, even where there was an availability of data. And we certainly didn't have nearly as much data being gathered at the time. The ability to crunch it was much more limited. In a book that is fairly critical of, of economists, uh, ending conscription probably isn't going to be the, the outcome that gets people most riled up. Um, so can we, can we talk about competition policy, regulation? What's your uh, accusation there? The origins of American antitrust policy are not in some economic model of the world. They are in a concern that uh, a democracy required a certain equality of condition among its participants, and that it was important for the federal government to maintain small businesses and to prevent the concentration of corporate power because that could warp the fabric of democracy. By the mid-century, economists were arguing and eventually argued successfully that this was the wrong model for antitrust, that it should be replaced with a primary or even a sole focus on prices, that the measure of whether a company was harming the economy was quite simply whether people were paying more as a consequence for goods and services. That's a very fundamental transformation. On the one hand, it allowed antitrust enforcement to become much more systematic. 
there was this concern that enforcement was fairly arbitrary in the mid-century because regulators were essentially making you know, judgmental decisions about whether a given corporate merger was going to hurt democracy. But on the other hand, it meant that a lot of things that were harder to quantify got set aside and devalued. And we have learned over time, and the evidence continues to accumulate, that, for example, corporate concentration can weigh on wages by limiting the options that workers have. I think the concern about its consequences for democracy is also an extremely important one. It's very hard to quantify how much a larger corporation uh, exerts political influence over you know, the laws passed by Congress or the decisions made by regulators. But directionally, it seems clear that that's right and that we have a lot more of it than we used to and that the original concern of the law uh, should be uh, a greater concern in the present day. So clearly there were some prominent economists whose ideas were translated into practical policy making. And the question I had is, is how we can be sure that it was really the fault of the economists or actually maybe it was opportunistic politicians using these intellectuals as a kind of foil for their very political decisions that they would have done anyway, even if the economists hadn't been there. There's a clear interaction, right? It's not the case that economists got to run the country and do whatever they wanted. Uh, and indeed, if you ask an economist, they'll tell you about their frustrations with the translation of economic ideas into policy. Uh, but nor is it the case that policymakers could have gotten to these places without the help of economists. These ideas had power. They provided a justification for policy, an explanatory framework for policy, a sort of a credible measuring stick for proponents of these ideas to say, listen, here's, here's what we're attempting, here's what we think we're going to achieve. If you disagree with us, you need to argue with us in economic terms. And so you end up in a world in which courts adjudicate antitrust decisions based on the evaluations of economists. And if you can't speak that language, you don't get to play. You've got both sides pursuing their own policy goals, and not because economists told them to, but the way that they're doing it is constrained by economic logic and economic ideas. And so the outcomes also are shaped by those uh, ideas. Do you think that economists today have improved, learned any historical lessons? How is today's economists are different? Economists today are taking advantage of the availability of, of much larger quantities of data, much finer grain data about individual behavior to uh, arrive at, at much more detailed and, I think, clear and accurate conclusions about the way that people actually behave in the economy. Economists have incorporated ideas from psychology and from other disciplines about human behavior. And I think all of that is allowing economists to develop much more realistic models uh, of the economy and therefore to offer much better advice about policy. I think, frankly, in a lot of ways, policy has lagged behind. It hasn't fully incorporated those insights and those developments. And so we're still living as citizens. The economics that sort of organizes our lives is, is frankly, an outdated economics. And part of what I hope will happen in the coming years is that some of these new ideas will begin to shape policy and to improve public policy. The economists still have an opportunity to make future hours better. Absolutely. Bini, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks to Binya Applebaum and to Samir Keynes. And finally, are you somebody who lives to work? Or do you find yourself counting down the days until you retire? Well, for many, the dream of packing up your things and enjoying a contented retirement in a cottage at the seaside may be getting more distant. 
A new report from the OECD, a think tank, says that the employment of older workers is vital if companies are to stay prosperous. And a recent survey of a 1,000 British people found that a quarter thought they'd retired too early, on average age 62. So what would a future with an older workforce mean for the economy? Philip Coggan is the Bartleby economist for The Economist. Hello, Phil. Hello, Simon. Let's start with a sort of snapshot of what the workforce looks like now. How grey is it, as it were? It's got a lot greyer. So the labour force participation rate of 55 to 64-year-olds has gone up uh, by eight percentage points across the OECD, it's of rich nations, over the last decade. It's gone up quite a lot among women. So uh, since about uh, 1990, it's gone up 17 percentage points. So it's a very large uh, rise. Um, and that's partly due to choice and partly due to necessity. It's just a problem that people can't afford to retire is as important as the fact that people want to stay at their work. But in a way, the trend seems to have gone into reverse, isn't it? For a long time, presumably, people were able to retire earlier, and then now we're all working longer? Absolutely. So the turning point was around um, 2000. So from 1970 onwards, you can look at what's called the effective retirement age. People tend to think in terms of the state retirement age as the time at which most people retire. But that's not the case. Most people retire a bit earlier than that. So across the OECD, In late 1960s, the average man was retiring as late as 68, but by um, 2000, it got down to 62.7, and then it's gone up again to 65 uh, since then. And for women, uh, the average age was as low as 61 in 2000, and it's nearly 64 now. And is this out of necessity that people are keeping on working longer or by choice? I think it's mostly necessity, but there's an element of choice too. So we're living longer. So we've the uh, life expectancy of people at age 65 has gone up four or five years in the last 30 or 40 years. So even if we're retiring at slightly younger than we did in 1970, we've got a longer retirement, um, which means you need a bigger savings pot to fund it. Now, the kind of pensions that companies used to give you, the ones that were linked to your final salary and went up with inflation, uh, have been disappearing. So now you just get a pot uh, when you reach 60 or 65 and you have to eke that out for the last what could be 30, 35 years of your life. And so when people get to the stage, they start looking at that pot and realizing with very low interest rates how little income they'll get from it, they start to think, well, maybe I'd better work a bit longer. And the other benefit is that um, the jobs that people were doing maybe in 1970, manufacturing jobs involving manual labor, there's many fewer of those in the economy uh, now. More jobs are in the service sector and not so physically strenuous. And so people can actually keep working without uh, you know, wearing themselves out. You mentioned that for some people it is a matter of choice. Some people actually want to keep on working. Yes. Um, so that survey showed, as I say, a lot of people regret stopping. And let's say you're faced with 30 years of retirement. Stopping absolutely today is quite daunting, really. You know, it's all very well to say you're going to sail around the world or you know, learn to speak Belarusian or something. You uh, don't already, Phil. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, you speak many languages, I know. You know. The first month is probably great when you, uh, you miss the morning commute. Um, on a cold, wet day, you can stay in bed, all that kind of thing. Um, But after a while, you know, you're stuck at home. Daytime television is not that enticing uh, and you start to feel a bit lonely. And companies benefit from having all these experienced workers around, but presumably it brings companies some problems as well. Yes. So there are two barriers really to keeping people employed. One is that we have a tradition of paying people more as they get older. Now, of course, in the case of you and I, Simon, this is to reflect our wisdom and experience. Um, But uh, sometimes employers think it's just too expensive to keep people on or to recruit older workers who might expect a higher salary. The second problem is that older workers, uh, not all of them, but many of them have not 
kept up with modern technology. So they're not technically competent. And more of the jobs today are involved with using technology. So if you are over 50, make sure you don't leave all the internet stuff to your kids or grandkids. Make sure you understand it yourself because it could be vital to getting you a job. So might retirement go out of fashion altogether? Might people just keep on working right up to the grave? Some people still do. I think, you know, for people in our profession, writing, there's no reason why you can't be going into your 80s and 90s. Gladstone became prime minister for the fourth time at the age of 82 and didn't leave office till well into his 80s. So, um, yes, it's perfectly possible. There are some jobs which obviously you won't be able to keep doing, but you might be working on a part-time basis, you know, a few hours a day, a couple of days a week, rather than in nine to five, five days a week in future. So how about your retirement cottage, Phil? Have you found it? I haven't found it done writing, done pontificating, and it's not going to be for a few years left. I can't afford to either. Um, But it's nice coming into The Economist and, you know, meeting very intelligent people like yourself and having an exchange of views. And uh, while I can still do it, I'm going to try. Phil Coggan, the wise and experienced Bartleby columnist. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist.